Spooky, Scary, Skeptical contains explicit content and topics that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone! I'm Emily! Cheese and rice! I'm Libby! And I'm Ken. And this is... Spooky... Scary... Skeptical. With a side of Pink Whitney, apparently. Uh, yeah. That's what it is! Oh my god, it's all coming together. Libby's like, what is going on? I'm just just here connecting the dots. However much that you drank out of it. You said, let's take a sip out so that we can fill it. I drank it down pretty far. Yeah. Varista. Oh my gosh. Emily's drinking a little bit of Pink Whitney on today's recording. No, I'm good. This is a very... I know, it's a serious topic, too, so you really are gonna have to sober up. Um... (laughs) Yeah, so welcome to our very first Team Scary episode. So we are all going to have an episode monthly. After Team Scary, we should have, like, a scream in the background. Team Oh, that's actually Team scary. Like some... <laughs> well, that sounds like a, a screaming goat. It does. Probably. <laughs> Team Spooky could be a... Ooh. And Skeptical could be a... Huh? Hmm. <laughs> Actually, not so sure. Yes. So let me explain this. Here's what's up. We are going to have Team Spooky, Team Scary, and Team Skeptical episodes once a month. And patrons, if you are on our Patreon, you're getting these episodes early. Lucky you. A week early to join our Patreon. And we also have new episodes, uh, new tiers on Patreon. So go check those out. And then... We will drop them publicly, but only for a couple months. So we may end up making them Patreon exclusive episodes. We'll see how it goes. But uh, we'll just need you guys' opinions on everything and what you guys think. And check out our Patreon because we've got new tiers and these drop sooner and may be exclusive only on Patreon eventually. So keep an eye out for that. And that's kind of my intro to team. Team Spooky, Team Scary, and Team Skeptical. So. I'll take notes. My introduction is good. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Excellent. So this is our very, 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 very first Team Scary episode. And we are going to dive right in. We are going to be talking about the Cafe Society murder. Ooh. So, I don't know what that is. Excellent. However, before I get started, I am going to need some help. Yeah. I need don't one of you to choose. At least you have no history of doing that, right, Emmy? You guys are gonna help participate. <laughs> you guys are gonna help participate in this episode. One of you gets to be our offic- the officials, and one of you gets to be the suspect. Who wants what? I'll take official. Yeah, I um, seem suspecty. Okay. When I cue Although, you, we have scripts. Yes. When I cue you, you guys get to join in. I asked if we had scripts. I know, but you didn't need to know everything about it till the time was up. Oh, so, I. This is. Don't worry about it right now. Don't read ahead. It's good. Don't read oh, ahead. Oh, okay. Don't read ahead. I'm just giving them to you because I'm going to cue you when we get to each point. So. Okay. I highlighted what you're reading in whatever colors at the top. Yes. Can we do voices? Yes, please. They are encouraged. Yes. Should the voices remain the same throughout the piece? There are several different people that you, that he will be acting as. You will be the same. I'll be one person? Because you're the suspect. Oh, thank God. But he, there's so several different officials, so yeah. 
So don't read ahead, Ken. No, no cheating. No okay. cheating. All right. Don't read ahead, you two. You guys right. are such cheaters, Ken. I haven't read anything, I swear. You're just kind of skimming. Scanning. No, I'm just trying to make sure I have like a Understand. feel for when I'm going to need to do something. Okay, I'm going to tell you when something's going to happen. I'm going to point to you. It's all good. Put your script down. This okay. is You are not going to be talking for a little while. Okay, we're going to talk. I'm going to get you guys into this first. All right. I, I'm into it. Okay. Kind of. So, we're going to be talking... Thank you, Emily. We're going to be talking... did it, too. Oh, he did? I can't... I, I did, yeah. Okay. I don't want to receive they both turned. They pro- both turned their papers over, because we need to focus on what I'm saying first. Yeah. Because so, we have no self-control. Correct. Yep. Yes. So, we are going to be discussing the Cafe Society murders. I'm going to start with talking about our victim, Patricia Burton Lonergan. She is the daughter of Lucille Burton and William Burton. William Burton was a trust fund baby... He had inherited a trust of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in nineteen seventeen, which is equivalent. Yes, please. Yes, which is equivalent <laughs> to six point three million dollars in twenty twenty. In nineteen seventeen, as he and his brother inherited his late father's fortune, they changed their name in a, as an act to avoid anti-Semitic treatment that ran rampant in NYC at the time. They changed their name from the German Jewish sounding Bernheimer to the American sounding Burton. Okay. William also changed his middle name from Solomon to the Christian name Oliver. So this is just a little backstory on Patricia. Kind of sad. I know. It's horrific. The brothers later stated that they changed their names in lieu of World War I. But it seems like there was a lot of other history going on that may or may not have encouraged that. There was strong evidence that William Burton, Patricia's father, was gay or at least bisexual. But back in the day, your private life stayed private, and these sorts of things were not acknowledged, and people were even charged for such indiscretions. Oh. So in 1920, it was announced that he was engaged to Lucille Wolfe, despite the rumors around his sexual orientation. Lucille Wolfe was the daughter of a slave-owning family in South Carolina. On September 25, 1920, Lucille and William were married. And then on September 1, 1921, they welcomed their daughter, Patricia Hartley Burton, into the world. Okay, dumb question. Mm-hmm. 1920 is well after slavery ended, no? I believe her, but she was young. Yeah, I guess it was what, late So her, gran- her grandparents might have, yeah, yeah, and her okay. you know, parents might have. So the family owned slave. Yes, okay. the f- slave-owning family, yeah. Got okay. Yep. So they welcomed their daughter, Patricia Hartley Burton, into the world, which is as waspy a sounding name as they could come up with. Hmm. Much of Patricia's childhood was spent traveling around New York City, where they had an apartment near Park Avenue and 72nd Street. I'm saying this for our New Englanders who may listen, who might know where all these things are. Okay. As well as Paris in Williams Villa in Mugins. Mm. She was essentially raised by two governesses. When they lived in the Mogines, the nanny and Patricia lived in a guest house so as not to disturb her parents while they partied and slept. Obviously. Okay. Need the party house? <laughs> And need the house where the kids go. <laughs> the kid. <laughs> the kid. <laughs> However, in the early 1920s, Lucille and William's marriage was already falling apart. Mm. Presumably because he was gay and hiding his true self, which led to frustration and distrust of the marriage. In April 20- 1922, there was a report of William using profane language at his wife in front of their home. In another instance, Lucille claims... How dare that fucker use profane language? <laughs> at his wife. Like, he's calling her terrible things. Like, that's... 
There's kind of a difference between using profane language and... He called her a sissy nanny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How did you know? In another instance, Lucille did claim that William hit her and knocked her head against the wall and ordered her out of the house. Oh, my. In another instance, he allegedly threw a suitcase at her and caused her to fear for her life. In eight- so who just has, like, a suitcase laying around? I imagine it was, like, one thrown. of those things that he, like, was, like, they were probably rampaging through the house. And, like, when he, like, opened the closet, grabbed the suitcase, and he's like, get out! You know, throwing... Mm. I I imagine. This is Mm. all speculation, but that's what I'm picturing. In April 1924, she claimed he pushed her down the steps in front of her home in front of guests, locked her in the bedroom for several hours, and took Patricia away for several days to an undisclosed location. No. Don't like that. By mid-March 1925, Lucille had had enough and separated from her husband on grounds of cruelty. William denied these charges, but the courts in both New York City and Paris were concerned about these claims. However, he stayed in France for so long that Lucille was able to charge him on grounds of desertion, and in May of 1926, Paris granted her a divorce decree. As alimony, William was ordered to pay Lucille $18,000 annually, which is about $257,000 in 2020. Hmm. Yes, please. So also, it was really interesting because I had... Just finished researching Lady of the Dunes. Join our Patreon. And they talked about people getting divorced on grounds of desertion. And then I was also researching this and I was like, synchronicities. No, it was just weird because like I hadn't really ever considered that as a divorce reason. Mm. Grounds of desertion. So Mm. Yeah. And by the way, all of this is just backstory to Patricia because it's kind of important to see where she comes from. Sure. It's it's relevant. Patricia's the daughter. Yes. In the side house. Patricia or Patsy, yeah. Oh, is she a Patsy? <laughs> no, they call her Patsy. In August. Oh, we, that's a, Patsy? Yeah. I think it's a nickname, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's an older nickname. But, yeah. yeah. Yes. Negative connotations. Like calling it. it like Winifred Winnie or like, I don't know, it's just like a nickname for Patricia. Yeah, but Patsy is like, a, I don't think it's Well, Trisha thing. is probably like the more common one now, right? Or Patricia or Pat. Question. Good question. Here we go. What's the badness that's associated to a Patsy? Like a Patsy. Um, it's like someone who's like kind of set up to used, take yeah. yeah, set up to take the fall for something. Like they say, like okay. what's his name? Help me with the Patsy. Who's who's the JFK guy? Why am I blinking? Oswald. Oh, Lee they said like Oswald? oh, he was just a Patsy for the CIA. Like okay, like okay, he was used by the CIA. Yeah. Okay. In August of 1930, Lucille agreed to remarry William. On the grounds that they did it for their daughter, whom they both worshipped. And that's a quote, by the way. Lucille and Patricia had a very close relationship. And Patricia called Lucille, her mother, Doodles. And Lucille called her daughter... And Lucille called her daughter, Mouse. Okay, that's kind of cute, though. Have a little nickname with your... You don't like it? I don't know. I wouldn't... Like, it's your mom. You're like, Doodles! (laughs) I don't know. It's, it just, to me, it seems very, it says a lot about their status. They were, she called her a nickname and not mother or mom. Like, she obviously wasn't raising her. Yeah, that's a fair point. Is that, like, yeah, no, that making makes sense. sense? Yeah. To me, that's how I interpret sure. it. Sure. Just doodles. I don't know, someone who lives next door to me. Yeah. In the party house. I'm not invited. <laughs> As Patricia grew up, she was well-known and accepted in rich society. Her social calendar throughout 1939 and into 1940 was jam-packed with regular events at the debutante club. Mm-hmm. She was described by a gossip columnist as a wannabe celebu- 
celebutons. 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 It's like debutante with celebrity mixed together. I can say those words, I swear to God. So she was often described as a poor little rich girl for enduring a, for enduring a strict upbringing surrounded by enormous wealth. Sign me up. Yeah. Good to go. So here is a picture of Patricia as she got older. You know, the hair, the hairstyles back then yeah. were kind of... So that's Patricia. So now that's her, that's her background, that's her upbringing. We're now going to discuss her husband, Wayne Lonergan. Lonergan was born in January of 1918 and was raised in Canada. As a child, Wayne presented with some delinquent behavior. He was an average student with an IQ of 123, which indicated very superior intelligence, which tends to be like a very common thing. Um, I believe that where if you have really high intelligence, you tend to be an average student or even a poor student. Not my fault, Mom. I'm just really smart. Smart, yeah. (laughs) And so he was arrested for stealing five days before Christmas in 1932 at 14 years old. And since it was his first offense, he was placed in probation. In March of 1934, at 16 years old, he was arrested again for shoplifting, but he talked his way out of trouble and the charges were withdrawn. In May of 1934, so two months later... His father died of a coronary thrombrosis, a blood clot inside the blood vessel of the heart. Mm. On the same day, Wayne was arrested for stealing bicycles. He was remanded for a week and placed on probation for two years. As a troubled teenager, he bragged to his friends that he made easy money through male perverts or homosexuals. His own sexual orientation would become a huge topic in the coming years of his life. And looking back, he was indeed bisexual. Wayne then dropped out of school at 16 in 1934. He was tall, dark, and Hollywood handsome with an impressive physique. He exuded confidence and had a magnetic sexual appeal that people found attractive. He was smart, charming, and debonair. In 1937, Lonergan accepted a position with the Ontario Provisional Police, the OPP, to combat the alleged communist influence in labor unions. To get a job and avoid any questions about his juvenile delinquent record, he used his brother's name, William Lonergan, which he continued to use for the few years when he went to the United States. So his name's Wayne, but he used the name William for several years. And this guy is not the guy at the start of the episode you mentioned had a suspicion of being bi or gay. Nope, that's William Burton, which is... His Patricia's son, or his son-in-law, eventually. Eventually going right. to be his son-in-law, yeah. So Patricia's dad. Patricia's dad. Oh, oh, okay. And now Got this it. is what Wayne, her husband. Who also. Is okay. bisexual. Right. So is he of money? Did you say that? Is he from He money? is not from money. Okay. No. I didn't think so. Given. Yeah. It, it feels like he had a very, like, middle class okay. upbringing, sort of, like, kind of in the average. I mean, I know the middle class kind of hadn't evolved completely there, but. You know what I mean? Like kind of an average His job at the OPP didn't really see much action, however, because the strike ended two weeks later after he started. So he returned to Toronto during the summer of 1937 and worked as a lifeguard. His supervisor later stated that Lonergan frequently neglected his patrol and spent his time socializing and going on rides in motorboats. So not sure how many children drowned under his watch, but as someone who used to care for children in a swimming pool... Stressful. Mm-hmm. It, by 1939, he had decided that his future was in the U.S. In October of 1939, he was laid off by the Greyhound management, who rated him a, quote, fair employee, but 
He soon found other employment at Abercrombie and Fitch, which in the 1930s was a sportswear store and for men and women located on Madison Ave and East 45th Street. Wow. I know. I was kind of like, hey, I actually know that. In the late 1939 or At early... At that point in time, Hollister was still up in Dudley Town. <laughs> in Dudley Town, right, 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 right. <laughs> Don't listen to our old episodes. That's not what we're talking no about. No lights. Really yeah. dark. In really there. dark in there. Lots of smoke. There's a lot of smell. Um, overwhelming. Was the Greyhound, like, Greyhound buses? It was Greyhound buses? management. Okay. Okay. So, that's what I'm talking In late 1939 or early 1940, William Burton who was 43 at the time, met Wayne Lonergan, who was 22 at the time, and was immediately drawn to him. So those are the two guys. So Patricia's dad and okay. Wayne met first. It was speculated that they became lovers at this time. It may never be known. So he- she married her dad's lover? Just you wait, dude. It was- Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> it may never be known the exact relationship between them, but by all accounts, it only lasted a few months. So, William Burton, Wayne Lonergan. And I'm going to show you a picture of Wayne. There's a lot of stories out there with, like, dads hooking up with the same girls as their sons and, like... But how many times have you gotten... Yeah. Married. married. Okay. I mean... That's Wayne. Okay. Her husband. So... 1940s looking dude. I don't know. Did Patricia know of these rumors? Oh, you're... We're going to get into it. Okay. I promise. You guys are asking the right questions. We'll get there. Oh, and here is a picture of both of them together. By the way. Them being Patricia? Patricia and Wayne. They look like two people who might... They look like two people from the 1930s. She looks like she's ready to murder someone. Like, she looks very serious. She's very fierce looking, yes. She's got a very fierce look about her. Like, the 1940s look of fierce. Yes. Not like... Not today's fierce. Not today's fierce. Yeah, as in, like, fierce as in, like, um, intimidating, maybe, or... Yes, very intimidating. So let's talk about Patricia and Wayne. With William Burton's approval, Patricia's dad, Lonergan began escorting his daughter Patricia to nightclubs and sometimes in the company of William as well. At the time, Lonergan was working at the World's Fair from May to October. He was fired for not working hard enough, but it was at that time that he then took a keener interest in Patricia and she in him. On Monday, October 21st, 1940, William was alone in his apartment when he had a heart attack. Lucille was still in Europe and did not attend his funeral. Patricia had a $230,000 trust fund, which is $3.4 million in 2020, from William's estate. So is this trust fund keeping... Because he was a trust fund baby too, right? Mm-hmm. But this is not the same trust. This is William's right, trust. Right. Yeah, from his dad, yeah. So he probably just invested in the right things, sure. you know? So on September 1st, 1942, the trust was to provide her with $1,219.30 a month, which is about $14,632 a year, which would have been $216,000 a year in 2020. So she was given, like, it's like a pay, a mm-hmm. paycheck. I could live on that. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> yeah, you think you could maybe do, like, $14,000 a year? Stretch a few things out. $216,000 a year. I'll figure it out. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Join our Patreon. <laughs> is that really bad? <laughs> that is pretty bad. Patricia also had income from interest from the bonds and other family investments. So this was not her only source of income. I was getting worried about her. I know. And also upon upon 
Patricia's grandmother, Stella's death, she stood to inherit another $7 million, which would have been more than $109 million in 2020. $7 million back then? Yes, correct. <laughs> yeah. She was wanting for naught, let's say. Oh, my God. Wayne and Patricia began dating more frequently by the time 1941 rolled around. On their first date, Patricia talked Wayne into escorting her to the infamous Stork Club. Stork? Stork. Oh, Stork. Stork Club. Like the bird. Baby-making club. Correct. The Stork Club is, on a busy night, might turn away as many as 500 people and was estimated to be grossing $3,500 a day, which would be about $1.25 million a year, which in 2020 was about $22 million a year. The Stork Club owner had a fun little secret code that to a lot of people inside. If he tugged his left ear, he wanted the th- customer thrown out. Lighting a cigarette meant the guests could have one of the best tables in the house, and blinking rapidly said that they could seat the guests at the bar with no access to one of the main rooms. So it was a very exclusive club. Please. Yes. And this is very like... Why is Jim spazzing out over there? <laughs> Uh, he, he just wants to sit them over by a bar. <laughs> yes. And this was a very exclusive club. So pic- picture like high society in New York. We're going to talk about some of the names we're going to drop here. There's a little name dropping going on, but this is a very exclusive group of people. What did it. the cigarette mean again? The cigarette meant that he wanted them. So oh, he, the, they could have the best table, table in the uh, house. Yes. What was the first one? The left tugging his left, left ear. He wanted the customer thrown out. Yeah. Yes. So despite not having any reservations, Patricia and Wayne were welcomed warmly into the club. So this kind of tells you exactly. She brought him a cigarette and a lighter. <laughs> Cheat code to get to the front, no less. <laughs> yes. So this kind of tells you how wealthy and a well how wealthy man. she was. Yeah. Yes. And it was her. It wasn't Wayne. She brought him. You know what I mean? So as a wealthy and pampered heiress, Patricia was expected to party in club several nights a week including rubbing shoulders with some of the Vanderbilts, Ooh. Astors, and Hollywood and Broadway stars, including Frank Sinatra. Oh! I feel like Frank Sinatra was everywhere. <laughs> yeah. He was a busy guy, Frank. He was also synchronicity. We just talked about him, didn't we? We just listened to him in the car. I know. El Morocco was another infamous club in the city where Patricia spent the last week of her life partying. It was a regular hangout spot. You for me she dies. I did say she was a victim, so yes. <laughs> victim of what? You'll find out. This was the regular hangout spot for people such as Cary Grant, oh, yeah. Judy Garland, Gary Cooper, and Rita Hayworth. So cool. Yes. I know some of those names. Yeah, yeah. So Lucille, Patricia's mother, who likely knew about Wayne and William's relationship, did not approve of her relationship with Patricia. By the end of July, however, in clear defiance of Lucille's wishes, Patricia and Lonergan drove to Las Vegas. Mmm. Yep. To tie that knot. Yep. On Wednesday, July 30th, 1941, they stopped at the hitching post, purchased their wedding license, and became husband and wife. Patricia was supposed to have said, quote, if he was good enough for my father, he's good enough for me. No! <laughs> what? <laughs> No. No. No, she didn't. Yep. Uh, so you guys said that, and I was like, oh, she knows. I I have all the ick vibes right now. That's not <laughs> cool. What? <laughs> That's what's up. Where so, did you learn this technique? Your father. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, 
No. So <laughs> I think that this also How was it, honey. It was all right, but not as good as your father. <laughs> I think that this should be an eye-opening revelation in the aspect that a she was not raised by her parents, right? So this is like she really wasn't like her parents were loved and worshipped her and doted on her, but they were not parents to her. She had a nanny. Or she a governess. Yep. Like, it's just such, to, for that to be normalized in her brain kind of is like a telling way on how she was raised and the strangeness of the society and how. Yeah. So, upon their marriage, the lies started immediately. Wayne convinced Patricia that he had his own money and a steady income from investments. Despite the tension with her mother and over the relationship, Patricia still sought her mother's guidance and love. Lucille, figuring that it was the right thing to do, decided to help Lonergan gain entrance into exclusive bridge clubs. But Lucille paid the price for such a gesture and was embarrassed as her friends refused to play cards with Wayne any longer because they accused him of cheating. Ooh. I'm not surprised. As their marriage progressed, Patricia gave Wayne a monthly allowance of $700 to cover household and personal expenses. So she still has control of the finances. But she's giving him money. But she still has control. Good. Okay. Lonergan did not have any regular employment because of this allowance. He was usually... Sign me up. <laughs> his usual weekday schedule was to wake Who's up... Whose dad do I have to hook up with around here? <laughs> <laughs> his usual weekday schedule was to wake up at 10.30 a.m., have breakfast, then go back to bed until later in the afternoon... <laughs> Then he'd eat, he'd eat a late lunch. That's, okay. uh, that sounds like a similar schedule. Yes. <laughs> In the evening, he would spend his evenings at the El Morocco Stork Club or other clubs with or without Patricia. Wayne often abandoned Patricia after they arrived at the nightclub for the company of other women and men. And she was forced to find her way home, usually in tears. No. Oh, what is wrong with... Okay. He, angry. He also skipped dinner with his wife regularly. He evidently had no qualms about being a quote-unquote kept husband at the beginning of their marriage, or even after they eventually separated, but it did provide a negative perception of him in the public's eye. Their life together, however, was spent partying at exclusive clubs, as mentioned before. At the El Morocco, also known as Elmo's, being oh. part of the club and its happenings were an integral part of their brief married life. They were in many ways part of the cafe society's members of the company, so to speak, just waiting for their big break. They weren't the stars of the cafe society, but they were members. You know what I mean? It's like the chorus line mm-hmm. of them. So the cafe society, are these the group that this go is to the, the rich? Yep. This is the rich exclusive group in, in New York. Patricia, on the other hand, took a nurse's aid course and volunteered three days a week, was on a 24 call for the blood bank. Nice. Their marriage quickly became tense due to Lonergan having limited control over the finances and more likely his inner conflicts about his sexuality, reminiscent of Lucille and William's marriage. The combustible combination of Lonergan's frustration and Patricia's young, inexperienced emotional immaturity led to heated arguments and screaming matches. They did stop fighting long enough for Patricia to become pregnant with their son, William Wayne Lonergan, born July 1st of 1942. The ADA would later ask Lonergan about Patricia and whether she, quote, exhibited the usual motherly attitude. 
Lonergan replied. Am I Lonergan? Yeah. No! (laughs) (laughs) But he did not provide specific examples of what he meant by this. But he also conceded that he was not a, quote, normal father. Yeah. Either way, being a parent did not affect Patricia's social life whatsoever. They had a full-time live-in nanny, Elizabeth Black, a 63-year-old governess who was hard of hearing. Lonergan, on the other hand, was rarely alone with his son. World War II had caused tension in the relationship. As a Canadian living in the U.S., Lonergan was eligible for the U.S. draft, which did not appeal to him. He claims that if he had to fight, he'd rather do it for Canada. When his draft number was called, he showed up to the first induction meeting drunk and was rejected for alcoholism. The board sent him a second... That could get you out of it? Uh, Hold on. Hold on. The board sent him his second induction notice and ordered him to return. And at that time, he admitted to the army physician that he was homosexual, which was well known that that would have gotten you out of the draft. He was classified by the draft board as 4F, which meant unacceptable and rejecting him due to immoral tendencies. Nearly three, di- and this was a common way that men would get out of the draft, I guess, and especially in like the high society, it seemed. Nearly three decades later, he insisted it was all a ruse, but this would not be the first time that Lonergan would use homosexuality as an excuse to avoid something he didn't want to do or explain his actions. So that's them as a couple. We're now going to discuss their breakup. By the summer of 1943, a year after William's birth, Patricia told Lucille that the marriage was a mistake. Their incessant bickering had only increased. It was also likely that Patricia was tired of the gossip about Lonergan being after her money and that he preferred the company of men over her. At the end of June of 1943, she kicked him out of the apartment and there was no formal legal separation agreement. After they separated, the gossip surrounding her was nasty, stating she dated a lot of men and she enjoyed abnormal sexual activities. This would come up later. Define abnormal. Well, I don't know how to say that without... Yeah. I'll, I'll leave it up to the imagination. Okay. So, this would come up later when the district attorney would ask Lonergan about these rumors, and he would respond that... Patricia did not like sex this way. <laughs> Shortly after the breakup, Lonergan entertained women at his hotel. He even registered one woman, Connie Kelly, as Mrs. Lonergan with the hotel and bought her earrings and stockings with the money Patricia had given him. Mm. Motherfucker. Lonergan did not have a job, and he conceded later that Patricia had given him lump sum payments of cash every so often. Throughout August, Wayne had convinced himself that reconciliation with Patricia was possible. He apologized via telegram, saying, Frightfully sorry about my inexcusable behavior. Our Irish temperament is too much. I, I adore you, and I always will. I am sorry I left you in a bad mood. Hope the next time I see you, you shall be happier. The only sane thing to do is forget everything. I won't like it, but I'm sure you will. My tired old heart beats for you. Love, Wayne. What a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Feel free to use voices, too. If you guys have, like, a good 1940s man voice, go for it. Okay. I can do better. No, you're good. Less than a week after his telegram, she distanced herself further and altered the terms of her will. Wayne Lonergan had been removed, and William became the sole beneficiary. And when Lonergan found out, he was angry. Is William the son? Sorry. William, yeah. Billy. William. Okay. And he also goes by William, right? Wayne goes by William, too? 
Not anymore. He okay, just did it like for that couple of years. Yeah. And William is also William Burton, her father. Right. There's a lot of wills around. That's why, uh, yes. Yeah. Gotta keep so, it straight. William inherited it, Billy. I'm gonna call him Billy for a while. He will that eventually good. go I like by that. William. He, he actually is called Billy as a child. He'll go by William as an adult. Okay. However, by September, Lonergan went to Toronto and had enlisted in the RCAF, RCAF, following two days of orientation. And this is the Canadian Air Force, Royal Canadian Air Force. Thank you. Yep. It was close to midnight on October 22nd, 1943, when Lonergan received furlough and returned to New York City. It is no surprise, then, that on the last night of her life, Wayne and Patricia each spent their evenings in the Cafe Society Clubs separately and with their own partners. So here is the timeline. On Friday, October 22nd, 1943, on a Trans-Canada flight at New York City, 14 passengers on board departed. On this flight was Wayne Lonergan. He looked forward to seeing his son. Apparently, the separation and failed marriage had caused severe depression, and he had hoped that Patricia might take him back. According to his testimony to the DA office, he had contemplated suicide twice in the past two months. Being cut off from his wife's inheritance may also have consumed his thoughts. Oh. (laughs) There it is. Yeah, you know. (laughs) A few days before his trip, Lonergan reached out to Patsy and told her that he would be in New York City, and she told him he could stop by Saturday afternoon to see Billy. Lonergan later claimed that during the first week of October, he had received a telegram indicating Patsy was in the hospital with appendicitis and required surgery, which allowed him to be granted leave. So earlier in October, he also was granted furlough or leave from the Air Force to go visit her. He learned that he was victim to a supposed prank as Patricia was not in the hospital or even Mm. ill. The ADA later asked to see this telegram, but he claimed to have thrown it out. Investigators were never able to find a trace of this telegram for the simple reason that it probably did not exist. Mm. Super. So he just used it to get leave, right? Yeah, but that was early in early October. So he spent the first week in October in New York City before returning again two weeks later. When he learned that he would be in town the weekend of October 22nd, Wayne telephoned Helen Wing, a young woman he had dated, and invited her to dinner on Saturday night. So the weekend that he came, October 22nd, the third weekend of October, he spent the weekend in the apartment of his friend, John F. Hargis. Lonergan arrived at Hargis's apartment at 3 a.m. and had breakfast with Hargis. Hargis, however, was leaving for Long Island, Long Island, Long Island, for a weekend for the wedding, leaving Wayne to have the place to himself. At 11 a.m. Saturday morning, he went to the family physician, Dr. Isidore Michael, Michel. Michael? It's M-I-C-H-E-L. So it's not really Michael. Uh, Michelle is how the football players, like Sony Michelle. That's how he says it, M-I-C-H-E-L. I'm pretty sure. Okay, Isidore Michelle, where he asked to buy arsenic for an acquaintance. For what purpose? He attempted, oh, he had gonorrhea. Uh, Arsenic cures gonorrhea? Listen, he had gonorrhea, so he's going to need this. No problem. He attempted to obtain arsenic at the two Toronto pharmacies as well, but was unsuccessful. So he offered the doctor $100 for a gram of arsenic, an amount sufficient to kill 50 people. The doctor gave him no arsenic, and none of this interaction was even considered in his trial. Uh, uh, At 11.30 a.m., Patricia woke up. Throughout the day, Wayne spent his time with Sylvia French, a friend where he bought a toy stuffed animal elephant for his son, which he later would leave at Sylvia's apartment by accident. 
At 2 p.m., Patricia kissed her son goodbye and walked to her friend's apartment where they spent the better part of the afternoon playing gin rummy and gossiping. That evening, she had a date with Mario Enzo Gabellini. I don't, I don't know. The Italian's not correcting name. me, so I'm good with it. At 6 p.m., Wayne arrived at Patricia's apartment. Patricia's gone. Patricia was already out, but was glad that he had planned to see their son, though she had no desire to see him. Wayne spent about 45 minutes playing with his son. He promised to return that morning to deliver the toy elephant to his son. By 7.15 p.m., Wayne was wearing his Air Force uniform and was at Murphy Jaberg's, or Mur- Jean Murphy Jaberg, she has three names, at her apartment to escort Murphy to a play. She did not know much about Wayne and only learned that he was married and separated later in the evening. Oh, she said they discussed various subjects throughout the night, but he barely mentioned Patricia or Billy. She later told the DA that if she had known, she would have never gone out with him. Well, that's why he didn't tell you anything. (laughs) At 7.30 p.m., Gabellini arrived at Patricia's friend's apartment, and Patricia and Gabellini headed to the bar at the Peter Cooper Hotel. At 8.30 p.m. So this this girl didn't know he was married and ended up that same night having drinks with the girl? Huh? Gabellini, right? Wasn't that the girl that just said she No, that's Murphy. John, like Jean Murphy Jaberg. Oh, is the girl she's out with. And Gabellini, oh, okay. Mario Gabellini is the guy who's out with Patricia. Oh, They're all out with their separate partners. Right, Sorry. Right. That, maybe I didn't specify no, that. No, you did. Good. No, Mar- yeah, no. Yep, it's I good. just confused them. Um, I can use their first names, Jean and Mario. Maybe that's helpful. So at 8.30, Wayne and Jean are leaving the theater. Gabellini and Patricia are heading to the Peter Cooper Hotel at 7.30. And then Gabellini and Patricia left the Peter Cooper with another friend and went to Luisa's family restaurant. Which sounds amazing. I mean, you know, you know if it's like a family restaurant with Italians. Amazing. Mm. We should have some pasta soon. I'm really hungry. Pasta? Pasta. Okay, anyway. (laughs) We're going to leave that in so people know that I'm hungry. Delicioso. (laughs) (laughs) After the show ended, Wayne and Jean took a taxi to the Stork Club. But getting in on a Saturday night without reservations proved impossible. Gotta bring the cigarettes and the lighter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Had they made it in, however, they may have run into Patricia that night, who was there with Gabellini and some friends. Mm-hmm. Wayne and Jean then took a taxi to the 21 Club and again had no luck. At 11.45, they arrived at the newly opened Blue Angel Cafe. At 12.30 a.m., Patricia and Gabellini headed to the Stork Club for her final Cafe Society appearance. So she left and came back, or... No, no, she, I said if they would have, they arrived, okay. they would have seen him that night. Got it, okay. Sorry. It's kind of a weird timeline. I was trying to, like, put them all in order of their times, but it's, it's hard because it's going back and forth mm-hmm. between the two. Good questions. This is good for the listeners to hear, too. Gabellini covered he and Patricia's dinner and drinks for that night, which was somewhat unusual because Gabellini was usually short on cash. Mm. Okay. At 2.45 a.m., after a night of drinking scotch, Wayne and Jean departed the... Blue Angel Cafe. Wayne invited her to Hargis's apartment, but she wanted to go home. He later said that he kissed her goodnight several times, and apparently she enjoyed it. He also claimed that he thinks he may have fondled her breasts. Murphy, however, said that he did not kiss or touch her. Okay. He's a little bit of an exaggerator. Sounds know. like. At 4.30 a.m., Patricia and Gabellini and their group left the Stork Club and had a nightcap and early breakfast at their friend's place. It's now 4 a.m. on Sunday, October 24th. But Wayne's night wasn't over. He decided to go for a walk. While doing so, he claimed to have befriended an American soldier in a uniform whose name was Murray Wooster. 
which would later be changed to Maurice Worcester. Mm-hmm. Wayne offered the soldier an empty bed at Hardis's apartment. At 6 a.m., Patricia and Gabellini... So wait, so he invited this random guy out? They befriended themselves on a walk, Ken, at 4 a.m. To this girl who obviously didn't even know him very well? Hargis is his friend John. Remember, he left... Oh, okay, and he had to play... There's a lot of characters in this. You're doing great. Sorry. It's good you're asking questions, though, because then everyone knows where we're at. So back to Patricia and Gabellini at 6 a.m. So Wayne's here with the soldier in Hargis' apartment. And he's supposed to be back... Pretty soon to his son to deliver the elephant, right? The next day, yeah. So yeah. the next morning, well, yeah. At 4 a.m. already, Correct. Right? Okay. At 6 a.m., Patricia and Gabellini left their friend's place, and Gabellini escorted Patricia home. A taxi driver waited for him outside as he guided Patricia up the steps to her apartment. No more than 30 minutes later, Gabellini was back in his own apartment. Mm-hmm. Lonergan was later questioned by detectives, and apparently the two men did not stay in separate beds. The following mm. is the questions and story provided by Lonergan. After a while, I climbed into the other bed with him. And what did you do? Nothing much. A few things. Acts of perversion? Yes. (laughs) Was the soldier willing? Not too willing. (laughs) Now he's British. Lonergan allegedly performed oral sex on Worcester and wanted it reciprocated. The two men argued and a fight broke out, during which Worcester scratched his face. Lonergan then went to sleep. Worcester scratched Lonergan's face? Lonergan's face, yeah. Might be Lonergan. I've been saying Lonergan. Lonergan? Oh, what did I say? Potato, potato. You said Lonergan. I've been saying Lonergan. You might be correct. Well, you get it. He's a murderer, so we don't care. Lonergan then went. Spoiler. He's an alleged murderer. Still spoiler. He's a suspect. She has the suspect. She know. (laughs) Lonergan then went to sleep and awoke a few hours later to find Worcester grabbing Lonergan's watch and uniform. Another physical altercation ensued, but Worcester managed to run off with the uniform and watch. So Lonergan, Lonergan, I think it's Lonergan. Oh, I'm an idiot. Okay, the whole second half of this is going to be Lonergan now because you said it and you're right. So Lonergan fell back asleep. Well, now they can't say I was wrong because I said it both. (laughs) There you go. Okay. So Lonergan fell back asleep. At 10 a.m. Sunday morning, Hargis's butler, Peter, so the place he's staying, served him breakfast. Peters later recalled that Wayne was irritable and demanded a refill of coffee rather than asking him nicely. So I guess there was some standards for how butlers were treated. Why did he steal his uniform? It's very suspicious. Yes, we don't know. Hmm. 12 p.m., Lonergan leaves Hargis's apartment to retrieve the elephant toy from Sylvia. He retrieved the elephant toy from the apartment, and she did not recall seeing any scratches on his face or anything out of the ordinary. 12.30 p.m., Lonergan stood in front of Patricia's apartment and knocked. No answer. She walked in, left the toy with a note that said, To Billy, from Dad, by the door of Patricia's suite. Wayne left promptly after and returned to Hargis's and called Murphy, the girl he was out with the night before, Jean Murphy Jaberg. But she stated that she was looking after her eight-year-old son, but he persisted and invited the boy to come along as well. He is into boys. Taking one look at him, she regretted it. Lonergan looked tired and was in ill-fitting clothing. She later testified that he certainly wasn't what she would call personable. Hmm. He told her the story about how he'd been robbed by an American serviceman the night before. She was then asked if she had noticed any scratches on Lonergan's face, but she said no. She also said she was, quote, angry that she had become embroiled in such a scandal Hmm. so this american soldier doesn't exist 
and there's evidence linking whatever murder is about to happen to the uniform, and he concocted this whole story about this guy who stole the maybe. uniform. Oh, maybe. That's my theory. Okay. Murphy. Murphy, her son, and Lonergan took Lonergan took a taxi to the Plaza Hotel where they had lunch. At 1 p.m., George Granada, on Bellini's behalf, telephoned Patricia and Elizabeth Black answered. Black told him that Patricia was sleeping. Gabellini insisted that Black knock on the door, but there was no answer. He called back again 20 minutes later, and Patricia was still unavailable. At 3.30 p.m., Wayne Wayne returned to the Hargis' apartment and left a note. John, thank you so much for the use of your flat. (laughs) I started to go like a New Yorker, and then it turned into something else. It did, okay. One moment. This is the same guy you've been talking for a little bit. Yeah. I haven't really stuck with anything. Okay. He, he, she hasn't found his voice just yet. Maybe by the end of this episode. Who's that guy who does the cowbell thing? Oh, um, uh, Christopher, Christopher Walken. Walken. That's what I'd like to go for. Okay. Let's try that on. <laughs> Thank you so much for the use of your flat. Due to a slight case of mistaken trust, I lost my uniform and so have borrowed a jacket and trousers from you. I shall return them on my arrival in Toronto. Yours, Wayne. I'll call and tell you all about it. That was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. That was not bad. It you, you can't, yeah, it did change about it did. halfway through. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's good. This was fun. At 7.10 p.m., he then took a flight to Toronto, arriving at 9.15 p.m. At 8.30 p.m., the first patrolman arrived to the residence of Patricia Burton Lonergan's apartment as the terrible news of her death had been sent to the 17th precinct. Let's talk about the murder. Patricia was found dead in her apartment October 24th, 1943, with her husband, Wayne Lonergan, being the number one suspect. Patricia lay naked on top of the double bed, wearing a sanitary belt and napkin. The body was cold and rigid upon discovery. We talk about how grateful we are that we no longer have to wear sanitary belts and napkins. Yep. What's a sanitary belt and napkin? It's what people dealt with in the olden days for their period. So it was literally like, a belt yeah. that, like, went around you. It was kind of like a huge diaper. Yeah. Mm. Sort of. Yeah. It's really ugly. Look it up from sometime when you're in free time. Yeah. yeah enjoy yeah. that. Um, <laughs> Patricia's arms were raised as if trying to stop someone from hitting her. Her head lay towards the foot of the bed and was cut open in three deep gashes. Her hair was matted to her face by dried blood. There was bruising on her neck and her legs were bent at the knees. There was dried blood underneath the vanity table and chair up against the window. Two candle holders were discovered broken. Half of one of the candle holders was on the bed to the right of Patricia's body, and its base on the floor was bent on three sides. There was a thick blood stain near the upper rim. Blood stains were also found on the molding of the doorway from the bedroom, on the plate of the electric switch in the bathroom, and on the plaster of the hall. Detectives also found a fingerprint on the base of the bed. The bloody fingerprint was also found in the bathroom, though it was not referenced in the trial since it could not be properly identified according to the 1945 fingerprint analysis. Oh, man. The deputy medical examiner showed up. His name is Heltburn. And he said, The pyramid-shaped base of the holders could have produced those deep scalp lacerations. She would have died from the skull fracture but the killer left little to chance. He also strangled her. She bled a great deal and put up a desperate struggle for her life. 
Several of her fingernails were broken, and I found the pieces scattered on the floor on both sides of the bed. Hepburn later predicted that Patricia had been dead anywhere from 8 to 16 hours, as early as 4 a.m. or as late as noon. DNA testing and analysis was not available in 1943, which we learned in, during the Lady of the Dunes episode. Mm-hmm. Join our Patreon. No money or jewelry was missing. Elizabeth took Billy, Patricia's 18-month-old son, his grandmother's throughout the day, and when she returned, Patricia's door was closed and locked from the inside. Elizabeth did not hear anything from Patricia all day on the 24th. She called the grandmother Lucille, and Lucille came over facing the same problems. Figuring that she was just sleeping off a nasty hangover, her mother was annoyed, but something just didn't feel right. Peter Elser ended up calling the house phone, and the woman asked for him to come over. Peter was like a friend of her, I guess. After arriving and unable to break open the door, he pried the door off its hinges, removing the pins from the door, and he walked in to find Patricia dead before running to call the police. On the discovery of her body, Billy was taken to his grandmother's apartment where he was cared for by a woman in Lucille's care. Elizabeth Black and Peter Elser went to the 17th precinct to give their statements. Annalise Schonberg, a neighbor, heard a brief argument and a scream and had decided it was none of her business. What are you doing? Stop that! Oh my! Was what she had heard, and her testimony helped investigators establish the time of death at about 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. The detectives learned two significant facts that drove the initial investigation. Number one, Patricia's estranged husband had been in New York City all weekend and had visited his son on Saturday before returning to Toronto. The last person known to see Patricia alive was Mario Gabellini. Gabellini was found in his apartment at 11.30 p.m. that night. He was stunned when he was informed of Patricia's death. When searching Gabellini's apartment, they found a white t-shirt that they believed was bloodstained. Upon closer analysis, it was a tomato-based meat sauce. Gabellini was questioned for nearly 12 hours and then for the next week was detained. He was held at $10,000 bail as a material witness and the bail was later reduced to $5,000 allowing for his release on October 31st. However, detectives quickly zeroed in on Wayne Lonergan despite the fact that there wasn't any real evidence linking him to the crime. So now we're going to discuss the suspect and the trial. Get ready, ladies and gents. Mm. We're going to do this. So, detectives in New York wired a request to the police in Toronto to detain Lonergan. When detained by Toronto's police, police noticed the scratches on Lonergan's chin and neck. When asked Mm. about it, Lonergan offered the vague explanation that he received the scratches after he returned to Toronto. Oh, so it's changing because I thought it was the American soldier. Yeah. As Lonergan was brought into custody, he was allowed to bring a bag of three bottles of brandy that he'd bought in New York. Seemingly unconcerned, Lonergan even asked to stop for breakfast on the way to the station. When asked about his missing uniform, Wayne provided the story about the American soldier, excluding the sexual intimacy. Awaiting New York City detectives, Lonergan was left alone in a room where he slept on and off. He was provided a pack of cigarettes, though the bag of brandy was not allowed in his room. By 10 p.m. Monday night, NYC Detective Lower had arrived in Toronto. The following is the conversation of during while Lonergan was being held. I suppose you want to know why you're being held. Is there anything you want to tell us? I cannot think of anything to say. Do you want to answer my questions? I don't know. 
Are you willing to tell me the truth about this murder of your wife, Patricia? Yes, but I don't know whether I should or not. I've been sitting around all day. Lower sketchy-ass answer. <laughs> Lower then went on to ask about whether Lonergan had had any violent quarrels with Patricia. Lonergan denied this, saying that the arguments were... Just the ordinary differences between man and wife. The conversation continued. Nothing unusual? No. Did anything happen in the summer of 1943 between you and Patricia? That is, this last summer? Yes, we were separated. When were you separated? About the end of June, or beginning of July. Was there any single incident which caused this? Nothing in particular. It was a combination of things. Will you tell us what they were? Nothing at all. I became tired of going out during the summer, and I introduced her to, <laughs> to this fellow I met who took her out all the time. Who is this man? A man named Crucy. Tim Crucy was an ambulance driver who was Patricia's simply platonic friend who enjoyed escorting her to clubs. Whether he and Patricia had an intimate relationship was unknown. The interrogation then continued for another two hours before Lonergan relayed the story of his day on October 22nd, slash 23rd. Eventually, he reached the part of the story about Murray Wooster, the U.S. serviceman that picked him up. All right, before we there, is Crucy the one they called over? And, or is that no, some that was other? Peter okay, Elser. Right. Then what happened? I just kept talking to him. What did you say to him? I offered him a place to stay for the night. Did you contemplate an act of perversion? A homosexual act? I vaguely thought about it. Did he go with you? Yes. Did you each have a bed? Yes. You stay in your bed? No. After a while, I climbed into the other bed with him. What did you do? Nothing much. A few things. Acts of perversion? Yes. The soldier willing? Not too willing. After recounting the evening and how he awoke to the soldier stealing his watch and uniform, Laura continued. Do you expect us to believe that? I wouldn't. <laughs> Sorry, that was so he scared the shit out of me when he said <laughs> You are serious? I certainly am. Why would anyone want your uniform? I don't know. The only thing I could think of was that I would have to stay inside until I got some clothes. After this, Detective Harris took over with a new line of questioning. Is it not a fact that both you and your wife have been living abnormal lives and that you had violent disagreements? We never had a violent disagreement. Did you always take everything in a cold manner? I suppose so. You thought badly about your wife telling you to get out. I don't know about that. But she had told you something that hurt you. Yes. It is natural to assume that ever since that happened and it had been smoldering in your mind, it became an obsession and you wanted to get back on good terms with your wife. I was on good terms with her. The conversation continued until Harris brought up their sex life. Did you have natural relationships with your wife? Yes. Did you ever sicken your wife of it? Lonergan shook his head. Did she ever refuse you? Yes, a couple of times. 
From there, Lonergan played dumb regarding questions about he and his wife's relationship, providing answers like, I don't know that, and I don't get it, etc. Instead, the conversation shifted back to Laura, questioning Lonergan about his relationship with Dr. Michelle. However, it was again a time for Lonergan to provide answers that were non-committal about his intentions for the poison. Lower then switched tactics, asking him questions like, Did you get any income from your acts of perversion? No, it usually costs me money. <laughs> of course, that led to another question about his relationship with the U.S. serviceman Murray Wooster, whose name mysteriously changed to Maurice Worcester in the story Lonergan now told. After the questioning, Lonergan finally signed the extradition waiver. It was the only way that he could clear his name after Patricia's funeral and see his son. What Lonergan didn't know was that Patricia's funeral was taking place that afternoon. Patricia's funeral, unfortunately, was a pitiful procession. Though she had many friends, many did not show up to her funeral. Too busy at the clubs? Yeah, it was real shitty. The mystery of why Jean Murphy Jaberg did not see the scratches on Lonergan's face was answered when John Hargis arrived with some incriminating evidence to the DA's office. While clearing his residence, Hargis found a Max Factor Suntan Number no. 2 compact, which contained thick theatrical makeup. Oh, he did himself On up. October 24th, a pharmacist confirmed that he remembered selling the compact and later testified that it was Wayne Lonergan. Though it, during the questioning, he did admit that he had seen Wayne's photo in the newspaper as well. Mm-hmm. So just something to consider. On October 28th, in New York City, Lonergan had been solidified in the public eye as a dangerous homosexual and pervert, with indications that he had had an abnormal psychological nature. The story about Maurice Worcester took another turn on Thursday afternoon when a man named Maurice Worcester showed up at the DA's office. When his name showed up in the papers, co-workers were giving him a hard time about being a homosexual. Thus, he wanted his name cleared, stating, I have an unusual name. I don't know whether this man picked it out of thin air, but I want the thing cleared up. I don't associate with a Lonergan's type, and I never did. <laughs> Very good point. <laughs> Lonergan was in the room when Maurice showed up, and he didn't look up or show any signs that he had even recognized the man. When asked he- by Grumet, the DA, he said, Do you know this man? Lonergan said nothing. Grumet then asked, Have you seen this man before? Lonergan said, No. <laughs> for the next three hours he offered denial after denial of any involvement or culpability however exhaustion won out three days later he agreed to their demands the following is a conversation between lower and lonergan what do you want to say wayne suppose i just say i'm guilty and have it over with can i do that why do you want to do it that way i don't want the thing to go to court well if you plead guilty that would have to be in court. That's the only way it can be done. You have to plead guilty before a judge. You mean I can't just say I did it and let that be the end of it here in this office? No. A judge would have to sentence you for the crime. Sentencing is done only in court. The district attorney's office has no power to do that, to sentence anyone. I don't care what happens to me. Even the electric chair? You must care about that anything. I don't care. As long as I don't have to tell all about how I did it and what I've been. For your own good, you should tell me exactly how you did it. Possibly, it might be something less than first-degree murder, and then you wouldn't have to go to the chair. 
Lonergan then went on to make a confession. However, the questions then became whether the confession Lonergan made on October 28, 1943 was coerced. In his confession, Lonergan stated that he was wearing his uniform leaving Hargis's apartment at 8.30 a.m. to head to Patricia's apartment on Sunday morning. He walked into her apartment and Patricia invited him into the bedroom. She was nearly naked and half covering herself with a sheet. He then proceeded to chide her for excessive nightclubbing, saying that she was behaving like a drunken sailor and a tart. I hate being called a tart. Next. She asked what she... It starts off as tart, and then you're a sissy nanny. Before you know it. (laughs) She asked what he had been up to the day before, and he said he'd been out with a pretty woman. She became very angry and very jealous. They argued about another minute or two before Patricia ordered him to leave, and then he didn't move fast enough, so she pushed him. She said, get out, and he would never see his baby again. The threat caused Wayne to snap and grabbed the candlesticks with his hand, rushed towards her, and struck her on the side of the head. Then he reached for the second one and hit her again. She struggled, scratching his face, kicking him, but he choked her with both hands for an estimated three minutes. Lonergan then left her apartment once she was dead, returning to Hargis's suite and removing his uniform. He took a sedative and began cutting up the uniform into small strips. He stole an iron dumbbell from Hargis's house and placed it in a bag. Duffel bag in hand, he headed to the East River. He tossed the bag into the river then headed to the pharmacy for the makeup contact. His confession emerged as the one piece of hard evidence the prosecution possessed to convince the jury of his guilt. On October 28th, he was tired and interrogated nonstop for 50 hours. Lonergan did have one request, nothing about his acts of perversion be included in his confession. Lonergan was shocked when he was charged with first-degree murder. On November 2nd, Patricia's will was filed, and the press immediately noted what Lonergan had known all along. He had been deleted from the will. Her entire estate would be left to her 18-month-old son, Billy. Now it was time for the defense. Edward V. Broderick was the lawyer to defend Lonergan, along with two other smaller lawyers, but Broderick is like the guy. It doesn't really matter in the courtroom. Edward Broderick had represented 37 men accused of murder, and of those, 34 of them had been acquitted, and three were found guilty on lesser charges of manslaughter. He wow. never had a client go to the electric chair. Broderick was regarded as the lawyer who held the record for most times, or in total, held in the contempt of court at the time. Broderick was also known as a scene stealer by taking the focus off his client and putting it on himself. Perhaps, most beneficially, Lonergan wasn't paying Broderick a dime for his services. Lonergan's legal feeds would have run as high as $25,000 at the time and were allegedly being looked after by a shadowy Toronto orchestra leader or an unnamed New York Society woman. So no one quite knows who is Mm. paying for his thing. Mm. On November 22nd, Lonergan was brought to court where he pled not guilty and the trial was to begin on February 23rd of the following year. At least, that's what the judge and prosecution believed. A list of 200 potential jurors selected from a total of 680 people, with only five women among them, was selected. In 1944, New York defense attorneys were at an extreme disadvantage. Prosecutors were under no legal obligation to relinquish evidence of any kind to the defense, including autopsy reports, witness names and statements, grand jury testimony, and police reports, and could release this information as the trial proceeded or not at all. Mm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. 
the Supreme Court eventually, in 1963, did overturn this law. Constitutional. Is that the thing? I'll have to ask someone who knows um. if that's the thing <laughs> that comes into play with um, my cousin Vinny. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. On February 23rd... <laughs> oh my god, I wrote 2023 again! I wrote 2023 so many times in this. Okay. You're on was- roll. I know, 1944. Maybe it's just autofill. Maybe it's autofill. Oh, yeah. Oh, maybe. We're going to say that. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Okay, well, either way, on February 23rd, 1944, 10 minutes before the trial was supposed to start, the judge was handed a telegram that Broderick had sent him, informing him that the lawyer was in Toronto investigating other aspects of the case and respectfully requested an adjournment. The judge was visibly upset and declared that Broderick's absence from the proceedings constituted contempt of court. And that he that deal number five? and that he deal with the attorney later. Yeah, uh, I think this was actually technically number four. Oh, uh, the yeah, record this breaker. was four. Yeah. On February twenty eighth, Broderick was at last in the courtroom, but he moved that the members of the jury be disqualified because they had been privy to the criticisms made about him the last few days, and the judge should also recuse himself. Uh, he was basically calling for a mistrial. Mm-hmm. The judge instead cautions the prospective jurors that the defendant must not be personally be prejudiced in any way, and then denied Broderick's motion. The first day of the trial was mainly taken up determining the jury. From there, things only got worse. False news articles circulated through the public eye um, over the next several days, some stating that Wayne was dishonorably discharged from the Army due to his personal life, others saying that his sexual, they had sexual photos of Patricia taken by Lonergan, and now Grumet, the DA, was also calling for a mistrial. Before the day was done, Broderick was calling for a mistrial as well, as there was clearly a vast conspiracy of mainly wealthy New York Jews and against him and Lonergan in that order. So obviously it was more about him than Lonergan, mm-hmm. but you know. On March 4th, Judge Freshy declared a mistrial, which everything on Judge Freshy was, like, super interesting. Like, he he seemed like a very chill judge, mm-hmm. and he didn't really put up with anyone's... Like, he was just very patient. He was a very patient judge. But, okay. So he kind of let Broderick do his thing, but he was, like, sure. unimpressed by it. Either way, at that time, Judge Freshy declared a mistrial, dismissed the prospective jurors, recused himself as the judge, and ordered Broderick to appear before him for the contempt of court, which he would not go to until Wayne's sentencing. The trial circus started back up again on Thursday, March 9th, with a selection of new jury panel of 300 people, which included only three women. A picture of the jury was posted in the New York Times on March 23rd, showing all 12 and two alternates. Which is very interesting that they would show a picture of the jury. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That just was weird to me. The one interesting development on Tuesday's trial revealed that Grumet, the DA, did not have Lonergan sign his confession. That seems like the cop in 101. And the DA. He's the DA. Right. The uh. presence of a signature on the document was not legally necessary at the time, however. To deal with confessions, New York procedure left the decision of how voluntary that confession was up to the jury. It took two decades before the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the New York procedure was unconstitutional and that it deprived, quote, the defendant of liberty without due process of law. So at the time, it didn't, it didn't matter how long. Vol- it was up to the jury how voluntary that confession really was. So it didn't matter that he didn't sign it. From there on, the trial was a whirlwind of witnesses and arguments. Elizabeth Black stated that she heard nothing, as she was hard of hearing. Lucille only testified for a few minutes about how Elizabeth Black had summoned her to her daughter's residence. 
John Hargis later testified that Lonergan's arrival at the apartment. He also testified about Lonergan borrowing his clothes and the makeup that he had found in the missing iron dumbbell at his house. Broderick was hard at work trying to get the confession thrown out. But of course, it was introduced to the jury on March 27th as the trial continued. As we mentioned earlier, because it's up to the jury to determine the validity of and the voluntariness of that At confession. that point in time, right? Yeah, at that time. At 4 p.m., the confession was read aloud, and the next day, the grisly details were printed in dozens of U.S. and Canadian newspapers. Following the confession, Grumet, the DA, had saved his strength until the end. Jean Murphy Jaberg testified to the story above. Max Levison, the pharmacist who sold the makeup compact, testified. Annalise Schoenberg testified as she was the woman who heard the shout at 9 a.m. Finally, a witness named Ruth Forrester was the woman who had seen Lonergan walking from his apartment with a duffel bag in hand. Mm. Yes, a surprise witness. From there, Broderick made several motions to have the jury not consider the first-degree murder, second-degree murder, manslaughter in the first, or manslaughter in the second. The judge denied each of these. Despite all of Broderick's strategic moves, he came up with no defense at all. By March 29th, Lonergan did not take the stand, which Lonergan would later say was a mistake. But as a last Hail Mary, Broderick asked the judge if the jury could go on a field trip to see if it was possible for Lonergan to have thrown the duffel bag into the water. The judge denied this as well. By March 30th, the jury listened to closing arguments. Broderick chose to speak for an hour and a half, proposing other options for who may have killed Patricia, including Mario Gabellini. On March 31st, the jury began deliberating at 12.46 p.m. By 3.45 p.m., the jury asked for further instruction. They wanted to know the information about the duress as it pertains to the confession obtained by the state. With both opposing lawyers and Lonergan present, the judge reviewed the facts of the case. He explained that the key issue to consider was the difference between confession given voluntarily and one obtained under duress. At 6.51 p.m., the jury members had a second question about the different degrees of murder and manslaughter. The judge explained the difference between first-degree premeditated murder and second-degree murder. At 10.55 p.m., 10 hours later, since they had begun deliberating, the members of the jury reached a verdict. We find the defendant, Wayne Lonergan, guilty of murder in the second degree. This meant that he would not face the electric chair, but would be sentenced to 20 years, if not life in prison. The sentencing was set for Monday, April 17th, and a day after the verdict, Broderick planned to appeal. Meanwhile, RCAF officials announced that Lonergan was discharged from the Air Force. On April 21st, Lonergan was sentenced to 35 years of imprisonment or for the rest of his natural life. He would not be eligible for parole for 23 years until April 22nd of 1967, which would later be revised to December of 1963. He was then immediately taken to Sing Sing Prison, a maximum security prison. In May of 1944, Broderick filed a quote-unquote right of election in surrogate's court, which Lonergan made claim to one-third of Patricia's estate. The, wow. the net value of which yeah, was... Yeah, that's got to be multi-millions. Because she hasn't inherited her grandmother. Oh, grandmother. she... Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So the net value of which was 228798 or $2.6 million in 2020. Yeah, I, I, was, I was including the yeah. $7 million. Yeah. don't. Stella's still alive. Yeah. Don't worry. 
However, it, it, it was... Killed them in the wrong order. Yes. <laughs> However, it was determined that he could only obtain the estate if his conviction was overturned. Makes sense. From there, Broderick continued filing appeals that resulted in Lonergan's sentence being upheld. So this is the aftermath of the trial. Lucille then took custody of her grandson, Billy. Billy was the sole beneficiary of his great-grandmother's estate, which was valued at $6.9 million in August of 1943. Young boy had already received $180,000 from Patricia's estate, which became $120,000 after administrative deductions. Lucille petitioned the court to change the boy's last name to Burton, which it remains today. Billy was 11 years old when he inherited his great-grandmother's $7 million estate. A million dollars at the time. Convincing himself in the coming years that he was wronged by the New York justice system, Lonergan then devoured law books and tried to find new and creative ways to appeal his sentence. During some of his later appeals, there was an affidavit signed by Harvey Kelly, the ambulance driver who picked up Patricia's body from her residence to deliver to the morgue. He stated that he quote-unquote dropped Patricia's body twice, once on the bedroom and second time outside the residence where she allegedly hit her head on the sidewalk. However, there was some speculation that any of this was, any, was even true, as Broderick would have used evidence of his own in the original trial. Mm. In the affidavit submitted in April 1965, Wayne claimed that he was tortured by Toronto and New York police. They continually beat him, and after he had been detained in Toronto, they deprived him of sleep, food, and cigarettes. I'm assuming the most important of all. Yes, that's exactly my reaction when I was writing this out. He also claimed he had, quote, been beaten by relays of police officers with open palms of their hands on the back of his head. This, so relays, is that like what I'm picturing, like a line? Yes. And then they go. Yes. He continued. And then but, they run back to the back of the line, <laughs> wait their turn again. Yes, correct. Back to the line. <laughs> he then continued by saying this torture was worse than Chinese torture. Quote. What's, what does that mean? It's worse than it can. <laughs> okay. Does anyone know what it means? Hey, it's worse than that. So, Lonergan later stated that he was physically abused by New York detectives who threatened him with their pistols. The court and detectives denied that anyone touched Lonergan or waved a gun in his face. They also stated that they didn't deny his right to a lawyer because he didn't ask for one. In the years to come, Lonergan insisted also that his story about Maurice Worcester was fabrication. The story, of course, led to lurid headlines portraying him as a twisted pervert and prejudiced members of the jury against him. Two decades later, Lonergan was adamant that Lower offered him a plea deal as well. If he confessed to murdering Patricia, then he would have been found guilty of manslaughter with a maximum of a 10-year jail sentence. This was also a figment of Lonergan's imagination. During his appeal in 1965, what was on the line was not only the retrial, but also the rights to one-third of Patricia's estate, which at the time now valued at $3 million. However, a judge found that his rights had not been violated by Canadian or American authorities. By the beginning of December 1965, Wayne had served 22 years of his 25-year sentence. He had been eligible for parole in December of 1963, but at the time the parole board had not been willing to hear him. He was granted freedom in 1965 and was immediately deported to Canada, where he would never be able to return to the U.S. At that time, he was 47 years old. William Anthony Burton, his son, was now 23 and a graduate of Harvard. 
Upon his return to Canada, Wayne sent a letter to William, inviting him to visit. He received a strongly worded letter in return from a lawyer in New York informing him that he should cease all attempts in communicating with his son. William then vanished from the public record after that, and on July 1st, 2020, he would have celebrated his 78th birthday. By all accounts, William does not remember his mother, but it is believed that he is married and lived in Florida for a number of years. At present, he may live in New York. Meanwhile, in 1972, Lonergan was introduced to a Toronto actress, Barbara Hamilton. She unreservedly accepted his story that he was an innocent man and had been in prison for a crime he did not commit. Eventually, he did moved to do any research. Right. Eventually, he moved in with her and found another generous woman with a healthy bank account to take care of him. How? In 1984, Lonergan became ill with cancer and died on January 2nd of 1986. And that is the story of Patricia and Wayne Lonergan. Wow. And the Cafe Society. Murder. How does he how did he find a second rich woman to take <laughs> care of him? I don't know, man. He's got something going for him. We don't know what, but okay, something. Yeah. That's what I, <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but <laughs> yes. So that is the story, the Cafe Society murder of Patricia Lonergan. Wow. And Crazy. so I have some questions. Would you have convicted him? Yep. Beyond Probably. Reason, I mean, we, doubt. No, we weren't in the courtroom to see the evidence and everything, but. Based on what? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really hit the highlights, I think, clear of what It was him. It's interesting, though, about the confession. You know, it was 1943. There probably wasn't. It's NYPD, you know, like, I mean, they're not the LAPD, but, you know, they probably weren't up to practices. Like, maybe they weren't treating him fairly. Like, you know, like, was it was well, it coerced? He had sure been. They had heard about his preferences. And yes. at that time, they were not, you know, so yeah. Open that could have played a part in it too sure yeah i i i just i asked because there's a whole the book this my primary research came from the book it's called details are in principle and it's by alan divine that was my primary research i used a couple other websites or photos and stuff but in that book it felt like he would he was defending the fact that wayne was actually guilty so i believe that there was and there was a podcast that i came across i didn't actually listen to it i used it because they had the photos i wanted um <laughs> but there's a podcast that's saying that Wayne was wrongfully convicted. Mm. So I will say I'm presenting this from Alan Devine's research. Mm -hmm. So it might sound a little bit more biased that way, but there are people who believe that he was innocent and it was coerced and he had nothing to do with it. Okay. Hmm. Well, then who did? Because it's either him or Mario. Yeah, or just, yeah, who knows? Because who, I who personally believe it was her? probably Wayne, but maybe, I mean, Mario, he was gone for 30 minutes and he was at 9 a.m. You know, he was probably off sleeping off. Like, they, no one questioned. There was no information about his alibi. Like, yeah, no one, the cab would have seen, right, Mario, the taxi cab, would the have taxi seen would have blood, seen blood. Yeah. And they found blood, but it was mm -hmm. meat sauce. Like, come on, bro. I don't know. And the whole uniform thing, it just all became very strange. Very weird. Yes. So that was um, a whole thing. Would you... So yeah, I guess like beyond a reasonable doubt, maybe today. I don't know, because the confession really throws me off because the 1943 confession by the NYPD might not be completely fair, right? Like, or mm -hmm. like, right? That, does, that doesn't mean he didn't do it. Like, I don't know. We also have DNA testing now, so who cares, right? Well, the um, fingerprint, the right? fingerprint testing, right? They only like had now, a partial, yeah. Now nowadays, like, they would have been like, you yeah, did it. you yeah, did it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And then, do you think, like, the confession was coerced or anything? Do you, how do you feel? It's hard. I know. Without being there. I have no do you idea. have any opinions about the case in general, either one of you? I, I feel 
pretty good that confident. it was him. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree. I I believe it was him. I think it's really sad. My I also go Patricia. What are we doing getting with this guy? Yeah, no kidding. In the first place, you but- fancy girl. Why do you get with this broke ass boy? A scrub is a guy who thinks he's fly and yeah. is also known as a bust out. But exception, <laughs> if your dad is vouching for him. <laughs> if he was good enough for you, dad, he's good enough for you. Yeah. And then he went on to find another woman who was willing to pay all his bills. Yeah. So, yeah, he must be B.I.G. Till he D.I.E.s. Never going to live that down. Never. <laughs> yeah. So it was a really interesting book. Um, I would recommend it as a read. I will say he goes into a lot of details about stuff that necessarily like I didn't really care about. What was the one thing I said to you one day? I was like, they went into like really great detail about gonorrhea and how it was treated yeah. at the time. I was like, okay, yeah. this doesn't need to be included. And I was like, gonorrhea. Uh, okay. Any pictures of that you want to put no. on Instagram? No. <laughs> but yeah, and then I will post um, the several pictures. I will say the one thing that really annoyed me about the book, like more than just going off on tangents, you know, whatever, but... There was only one photo of Patricia in the book. What? Yes. Like, there were so many... I don't have the book next to me. There were so many pictures, like, of, like, this is William, this is Wayne, this was Lucille, here's so-and-so, here's here's the district attorney, here's Broderick, here's this... There was only one photo of Patricia in it, and it was, like, Patricia and William together, like, Patricia and her dad. Hmm. And it wasn't even, like, a great photo, and I was like, this isn't about... I know that he's, like, he's saying Wayne was guilty. I think he was... Like I said, I think it was an argumentative book a little bit because people had come out and said, oh, he obviously wasn't. But the way I see it, like, this is, should be about the victim. Mm-hmm. Like, Patricia's dead. Regardless of who she was, regardless of, like, you know, her high society, regardless of her being, like, poor little rich girl or whatever, it should be noted that I think she she's the victim and we need to give her yeah. credit for that. So. Yeah. That was the one, my biggest qualm with the book, but... It was still interesting. So that is, that's the Cafe Society murder. Really well done. Thank well, you guys so much for doing my scripts. Thanks for participating cool. in it that. It was fun. It was I fun. decided to try something new. I wasn't quite sure. I, I think I told Emily a little bit ahead of time. I'm going to try something new. I'm not going to tell you I what. I was completely. Uh, in the dark? In the dark. I didn't tell her what. I literally said, I'm going to try something new. I don't know how it's going to go. So it, was, it worked out well, I think. You crushed it. Thank you for yeah, that was all awesome. your research. Thank you so much. Yeah. So that was our that was our very first team scary episode. Bada bing, bada boom. It's gonna Woo! be hard to <laughs> go up against yeah. that. No, no, it's good. But yeah, so uh, thank you all for listening. We hope you have a great week, and remember to be a little spooky, a little scary, and a little skeptical. Bye, later's. Peace. everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Our sources are linked in this episode's description. You can find us on Instagram at Spooky Scary Skeptical Podcast. Email us at Spooky Scary Skeptical Podcast at gmail.com. TikTok at Spooky Scary Skeptical Pod. And you can follow us on Patreon at Spooky Scary Skeptical Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five-star review. 
It means so much to us. Love a spooky girl, a scary girl, and a skeptical guy. Hey, everyone. What? Your voice went down at the end. Are you well? Hey, everyone. Don't you usually say, hey, everyone? Hey, everyone? Maybe not. Why don't you start us off, Em? Yeah. No, I don't want to Well, you can't, you. you can't, she can't start because then... You start thing, Ken. Well, yeah, as soon as I started yeah. saying that, I was like... I'm the only one left, damn it. <laughs> I think you should. But I hope you Where's can take Kelly? that as... I'm sorry, I didn't mean that as a critique. No. It just sounded... You went, hey, everyone. No, you... you I sounded like Eeyore? Your... I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Sorry. What? Okay, here we go. <laughs> hey, everyone. No, I didn't... <laughs> she literally announced, all right, here we go. And you're like, Okay. This is going at the end of this episode. It's going to be a blooper reel at the end of the episode.